Battleline podcast, we have Tom Young coming on, West Virginia Air National Guard vet with over 20 years of service, retiring in 2013. He is the author of Red Burning Sky, which is actually out tomorrow for all of you guys listening on Monday. Uh, we're going to get into some stories. We're going to talk about the Canadian trucker stuff, as you see. We'll also talk about some stuff going on in the White House, the State Department, the media. Uh, but before we do, as we always say, there's new listeners checking us out every week. And for those new listeners, my name is Ian Scott. I am Chris Peranto Tonto in some circles. Some. And uh, hopefully we didn't, we didn't step on each other there because I always notice that every time I uh, I put I put this back and I put it on the show, it sounds like you're stepping over me, and it's just because of this like minor time delay. Uh, I don't know why, but anyway, we're gonna figure that type of st- stuff out. It's just kind of funny to see. Um, but before we get into everything, we have a great new sponsor on board that we're really excited about, and that's BioPro Plus. Now, guys out there, guys specifically, <laughs> as in males, are you 35 or older? Do you currently feel like you're lacking that primal motivation, drive, and energy you used to? Do you want more out of life and to improve your performance in the gym and in the bedroom? Well, here's the deal. Every year after puberty, your growth hormone decreases, sometimes by 50% by the age of 35, and it only keeps going down from there. It doesn't matter how in shape you are or how good your diet is. It's happening to all of us. That's where BioPro Plus comes in. BioPro Plus is the first of its kind. Here's the thing. It's 100% non-synthetic, and it's an alternative to prescription HGH growth hormone treatments. It immediately replaces what your body is no longer getting, and it does it naturally without the needles, nasty side effects, or expensive cost of the typical synthetic growth hormone treatment. Uh, Chris, it took a while for us to really stand by this product because you wanted to try it and, and really get on board yeah. with this before we would, you know, we suggest it to our listeners. And we're never going to suggest anything to our listeners that we're not fully into. Uh, and as you've said before, we've talked about the effects of HGH of steroids. And this this is something that's a really strong alternative. Oh, it is. And, and as you get older, you know, in your 50s, like I'm, I'm almost 51, you do see a reduction. You do see reduction in energy levels and muscle mass in libido, libido in the bedroom or your or your significant other or my wife saw some reductions in libido in the bedroom. So, but this is an alternative. We, I am strongly against HGH or steroids, anything that's synthetic. This is not. So it was great to try it and and to see if it worked and also to see if it affects my ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel disease, which it didn't, didn't affect it in a negative way. We try every product. We use every product that we push guys on, on the show. And this is another one that I am very, very happy that it, not just as part of the show and their sponsor, but it came into my life because it's given me more energy, more libido in the bedroom, uh, recovery times quicker. And it's another part of our healthy lifestyle that we promote with Ned and Bubs Naturals and now BioPro. So guys, check it out. Do your research on it. If you're going to start it, though, do check with your doctor if you're on uh, if you're on medication to see if it will conflict with that. But it is all natural. And yeah, we will never push HGH or steroids on the show, but we will push alternatives to help you get a better lifestyle, especially as you get in your older, older years. And this is one of them. BioPro is excellent. Yeah, if you feel any of that stuff lagging, now is the time to check this out instead of, uh, you know, doing something that could have really detrimental effects on your health. And that's why we will never push that type of stuff. So Battleline podcast listeners receive a $30 off 
promo by using the promo code BATTLELINE at checkout. Just go to bioproteintech.com if you want to fix your performance in the gym, bedroom, chronic fatigue, and pain, or even just how you look in the mirror. You need to go to bioproteintech.com and use the promo code BATTLELINE for $30 off while supplies last. Bioproteintech.com. $30 off when you use the promo code BATTLELINE at checkout. All that info is in the description. And I can't speak more highly of darn tough Vermont. Uh, whenever I'm out there, especially in this weather, in my boots, it doesn't matter what socks I buy. They eventually all get eaten up. They're you know no longer usable. Darn tough, they're guaranteed for life. They make the best socks on the market. If you're tired of slipping, smell, blisters, binding, and holes, you get none of that with darn tough Vermont socks. They're made with the softest itchless merino wool, which are unconditionally guaranteed for life. For real. Family owned and knit right here in the USA, in Vermont. Darn tough bits for every interest. Hiking, skiing, snowboarding, work, athletic, running, hunting, and playing everyday use. I see you're holding them right there. Uh, and the thing about them, they're not like, they're not super thick, no. and yet they hold up. Uh, they're, they're comfortable. I, I tried them out. You know, Ian, you, you got me a few pairs, and uh, just tried them out running around. I actually ran in them. I ran five miles in them uh, uh, when it was really cold out here a few days ago. And um, now they're great. No hot spots, no chafing, no blistering. And then I just wear them daily with my cowboy boots when I was doing some speaking events, walking around on stage. Tremendous. No hot spots, no rubbing, no slipping. And then just daily wear where me with my tennis shoes walking around the town with my wife. Tremendous, guys. They, they don't slip at all. You always worry about hot spots with socks, especially if you're a runner. I got none of this. Now, granted, I only ran five miles. You guys that are putting in half miles and marathons, I mean, a half marathons and marathons. Maybe you'll give us some feedback on that if you weren't. But five miles. Uh, it, tough, it is. And, and it, it is. It is hard tough. And they are extremely comfortable and they're easy to get on and they stay up. So I've got the, the calf length and then I've got the boot one, which are over the calf. Both stay up. I didn't have any of them falling or dropping down as some socks do. Because uh, because of the elastic isn't that good. No, they're excellent. They're tremendous. So, uh, yeah, again, we don't push anything on the show we don't use or we don't support. And these are something that I support. And I've put them through the ringer so far and working out daily wear. And then also up on stage in cowboy boots, walking around talking to people. So uh, there you go. Tremendous stuff. Tremendous product. Yep. And so many people in our audience, and we've said it before, oh, nothing's made in the USA anymore. These are. So awesome. if you want to uh, support a USA-made brand that's really putting out a great product, you got to put your money where your mouth is. It's darntough.com to get your pair today. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Twitch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. Hey, 
The Switch is on, Battleline Podcast. Before we get to Tom Young, we've got plenty of news to get into. There really is no shortage of news in our realm right now. And I guess we'll start off right now with uh, the White House and the State Department officials shutting down reporters questioning of Russia and Syria, which also played into another issue that you sent me where um, Lester Holt did this interview with Joe Biden and said the administration ignored warnings from top intelligence on the ground over the Afghanistan withdrawal. So there's there's been a little bit more pressing on Joe Biden and and not all these softball. Well, and they should be because you're seeing these these press secretaries, these spokespeople for the White House come in and and give information, but provide no no verification, no validity, no nothing to say this is where we're getting our information from. It's just we're telling you this. You got to believe us because we're the U.S. government. Well, I think all of us have seen over many, many years that the the last people you're going to trust are the ones that work for the U.S. government by just giving you stuff at face value. I think that's been proven over and over and over again. I was in an incident where that was specifically the case where the U.S. government and the CIA and the NSA were giving out bad information of what was going on in the ground in Libya. Um, and we're rarely getting your information from social media instead of listening to the people that were on the ground that night. So. It's good to see that it's not a side, and I hate to call it sides. I don't like that. But if you wanted to, you know, Lester Holt and then Jake Tapper got on it, which I think he did a great job uh, uh, go feeding off what Lester Holt's interview was and then calling out the White House and specifically Joe Biden. But you're seeing that journalists are finding their integrity and they are pushing back and saying, hey, we're not going to believe you because you're telling us this. Where is this verification coming from? And it's, they're not asking for intel. They're just asking, hey, where is this coming from? What what leads you to believe that this is what's going on in Russia or going on in, in, um, in help me out, what, uh, help me out, brother. We're just a Ukraine, Ukraine, yeah, Ukraine. Ukraine yeah. and then Syria. And then also uh, you see the White House going on. I, I don't know who the press secretary's name is. I forget her name. Jen Psaki, where, where she thinks, where she gives – goes out continually and says the Afghanistan drawdown. It's like it was a success. The Afghanistan, um, uh, the the debacle in Afghanistan seems to be a success because Joe Biden said, hey, we're going to get out at this time. And he did. What? That we're not questioning that. It's how it would happen. And now you're deeming it a success, even though it's a massive failure and many, many lives were lost. Another country was completely destabilized and many more lives are going to be lost in the future, which it's not a success. So um, I, I see it as a good thing. I see it as journalists from, if you want to say right and left, I guess we have some, I, I have to say that so you understand. But I think journalists as a whole are starting to, to find their integrity and saying, no, I, I don't care what side of the aisle I'm on. We need some validity of where this is coming from. Or we need you guys to be responsible for the massive failures that you put out there and you can't keep claiming it as success because that's propaganda. That's exactly what propaganda is. A government telling you something and you can't question it and you have to believe them because they're the government. Well, no, that's not what we have in the United States. We may have had, I've served in countries where that is the case. And believe me, guys, you, we don't want the U.S. to ever be like that at all. Um, so it's admirable to me. I think it is. I don't know. What's your opinion? You, you know, you follow you follow some of this stuff too, but I, to my opinion, it's completely admirable. And I think they do need to continue to do this because this is the most, this is the least transparent 
government that I, in my opinion, since I followed it, <laughs> started following government, worked for the government, this is the least transparent government that we've ever had. And this is a government that continues to push false narratives out there and, and we're supposed to be buying it. And it, it's, it, and it, it, it makes us a weaker country in my opinion, but I'm glad journalists and like Holly McKay, another one we had on last week, journalists like that are pushing back and saying, Nope, this is bullshit. You're telling us lies. Tell us the truth. And if you're not going to, well, then we're going to keep calling you out until you do. And that's tremendous. I, I love it. I love seeing that. Yeah. White House press secretary is it's a weird job, no matter the administration, yeah. because uh, honestly, your job in many ways is to lie on behalf of the administration, <laughs> yeah. Be, because the fact is you have to sugarcoat everything. You work for the president. So you're never going to go up there and say we got this wrong or we got that wrong. Um, you know, and during the Bush administration, we had to continually say, you know, we should be in Iraq. There are weapons of mass destruction, all those types of things. And, and we saw it in the last administration. Uh, you know, I could even think of an example when Sean Spicer said there were more people at the inauguration than Obama's inauguration, which we know was not true. And, and you know, they just have to push whatever narrative the president is going to say. So it's it's a strange job. You can't really have integrity and have that job, I would say, no matter what you do. Because yeah, yeah, think yeah. about it, man. We all get things wrong. But if my job is to say that, you know, if you were the president, that everything you got was man. right, it, it, no one gets You know, but uh, that says a lot for how terrible our leadership is. I th- great leaders are ones that can admit a failure. And I, to be successful, you're going to fail. You're going to have mistakes. And if you, and again, I, you, I know you know this. I'm not saying that you don't. You feel the same way as I do. I get where you're coming from. But I think that just says the state of where our government is and where leaders in our country are that you can't say, you know what? All right, we made a mistake here. Let's learn from it so we don't make it again. That's why we continually make the same mistakes year after year after years, because the arrogance and the incompetence that's continually allowed because they can't say they're wrong. I can't admit that I'm wrong. Why can't you? I'm president of the United States. Okay. You're a person, right? Did you screw up? Yeah, I screwed up. Let's not, let's figure out how we don't do this and figure out how we're not going to ever have this happen again. And so if it ever does get in this position that we could possibly have to leave a country again, we do it the correct way. So we learn from those failures, but we didn't. That's why you saw the pictures of us that Chinook in Vietnam compared to the pictures of the Chinook that was in the state department compound at the embassy in Kabul. They're exactly the same. We didn't learn from those mistakes. I get what you're saying. I know you feel the same way I do. I just feel like, man, integrity, there is no integrity in DC anymore. And, and, but what I mean, when you think about it, what president has ever admitted to a fault like in our lifetime? And, I really can't think of any. Yeah. And there's there's politicians you have. And, and I've mentioned them on the show before, like a great one who passed away was Walter Jones in that he was the guy who was famous for calling French fries freedom fries. And he was very, very uh, gung ho about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then when guys came back to his district losing limbs. Yeah. Um, he started to change his mind and he said, I shouldn't have voted for these wars. They were a mistake. And I think that does take courage. But in terms of presidents, I, I genuinely, I mean, I have to look, but I really can't think of an example when either, uh, Biden, Trump, Obama, Bush, uh, you know, Reagan, Reagan, I can't think of any times that these people have ever said, we got this wrong. And we apologize. Well, and that's maybe that's why we need to learn from it. And maybe this is the turning point here. Maybe this is the where we're meeting the crossroads. Maybe this is this is where the journalists are saying, no, no, I'm not believing you. I, I wish I could have found 
that I couldn't find it. The interaction between it wasn't Jen Psaki, but it was somebody else that was talking about uh, uh, talking about Ukraine and saying we had intel that the Russians are doing a ruse and this and that. And there was I, I couldn't find it, brother. I, somebody might find it out there. But there was a journalist that was going back and forth with whoever that was out front at the White House spokesman saying, well, where's the verification? Well, we don't have any. Well, then how can we believe it? Because I'm telling you. Well, no, <laughs> that's not. How, and it was it was kind of funny. It was like for five minutes going yeah. back and forth. But it was someone from the State Department. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Right, right. I, it was. You're right. You're right. And I, I just I, I wish I, I wish I could find it. But to me, seeing that and I didn't know who this journalist was. I never heard of him before. But seeing that back and forth, it's like, man, finally, finally, there's really some back and forth arguments going on, not arguments, but some as a journalist asking for, for validity, asking for verification. Um, and I, 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 it, we need to find that in DC. I, I don't think we'd lose faith in a president if they made a mistake and they came on and said, you know what? I screwed up. I made a mistake. Now they wouldn't say I screwed up, but they do it in more a professional way, but say we need to learn from these mistakes. We need to learn what we did wrong, what I did wrong. I made that wrong call so it doesn't happen again. And and taking responsibility for their actions. Yeah, I I said even the agency, they couldn't do that when I came back from Libya. I asked behind closed doors. I said, just tell me you're sorry. Nobody even has to know that you're saying you're sorry to me. Just tell me you're sorry for what happened, for you guys not doing what you should have done. They couldn't even do that behind closed doors. So I do think there's a lack of integrity, a lack of courage, a lack of intestinal fortitude, a lack of moral courage, I should say, not just courage, moral courage, because there's a difference between moral courage and physical courage, a lack of moral courage, because we allow them to get away literally with murder (laughs) in most cases, and we don't hold them accountable. So it's nice to see that this is going on, whether it leads to something in the future where there are some changes in integrity in the White House or in D.C. or the State Department or in Roslyn or in Langley or whatever. But at least somebody's trying. And the first step is to try. And it's admirable to see that it's both sides. God, I hate to use that. It's admirable to see that it's the left and the right both doing it now, not just one doing it because the one president's in office or the other doing it because the other side's president's in office that there are groups from both coming in. And I, I love, talk, I, yeah. I, I do. I, I love talking to Holly last week about that because to me that she epitomizes what integrity is, at least in what she reports on, because she doesn't take a side. She just says, this is what's going on. Like it or not, this is what's happening. And, and that's how, that's how it should be. Uh, it is not. You, you also have to keep in mind, and, and I, uh, look, this, this I would say I would know, not from polls, not from anything I see on the news, just from talking to people of all different political ideologies that I know. And the people on the left generally were not big fans of Joe Biden. I don't know anyone who was like a giant fan of Joe Biden. People who would, who would label themselves leftists, liberals, even, even socialists, they, they liked Bernie Sanders. They liked candidates like that. Uh, they kind of got stuck with Joe Biden. <laughs> so I think they're more likely to call him out as opposed to Republicans were very, a lot yeah. of them, right? Not myself, and I'm a Republican. We're very gung-ho about Trump. So I think it's a little bit easier for journalists on the left to say this guy got something wrong because they weren't really that enthusiastic. They held their nose and voted for him the same way Republicans felt with John McCain, for example. Yeah, that, I'm sure you're right. I, I, I guess... I, I didn't follow it as much as 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 uh, I don't really ever follow a lot of that much as all as far as 
who likes who. And I just, I, I'll, uh, but I, you know, I, I do admire and I do trust your opinion because you do, you, you do know that more than I do. Not that you're a follower of politics, you're not, but I, I honestly, I, I agree with you on that because you, and you do live where you you can see that on a daily basis in the Midwest. You know, we really don't see a, well, if you think if you think of what people on the left really value and the things they were pushing, um, it certainly wasn't this. Yeah. It was it was universal health care. Um, it, it was a withdrawal of troops, but maybe not in this way. Uh, and, and things like uh, a um, forgiveness of college sure, loans, sure. things that have not happened under Biden. So they're more likely to say we're not happy. With and, and that's another reason why the heck is the is the government's if they don't have followers or good supporters from the right or the left, why not try to breach that gap instead of just continually being assholes and literally saying, Hey, you're going to believe us or fuck you. We're not, <laughs> who gives a shit? We're telling you this. If you don't believe us, go eat shit. Cause we don't have to verify it. Cause we're the U S government. You would think if you had any humanity and any integrity at all, I keep using that word integrity because I think it's important that you would try to reach those people and gain their trust. That's what a good leader would try to do. I'm trying to reach out to y'all and gain your trust by telling you the truth, not just saying, believe this because I'm telling you that that doesn't work. And that's, that's not leadership at all. Um, but no, I, 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 I'm, I'm, whether that's the case or not, um, when I believe you're right, I do believe you're right. I'm glad that it still is happening. I still am glad that there are left or right. Cause it, if you're like me, that doesn't follow really a, as much as I probably should be being on a podcast, the intricacies of how left the left is and how right or right is all I see as, is I see both sides coming together and finding some kind of common to come together to call out and say, hey, integrity, you got to tell us the truth. Yeah. But I'll throw it out there this way. And, and so many people have pointed this out. And to me, this has nothing to do with, oh, how many votes did this sure. one get? It's just because vo a vote is a vote, whether you're enthusiastic about the vote <laughs> or not. But how many more Trump signs did you see? Yeah, how many more lot, Trump hats did you see? Even here in New York or, you know, where I'm currently at in Connecticut. Yeah, you, you still see a lot of Trump stuff. The voter enthusiasm for Trump was much higher than voter enthusiasm for Biden, as opposed to if they would have had someone like Bernie Sanders up there, people would have been more on board. So I kind of understand why there's a pushback from all and, sides. And, you know, speaking of all the signs and things, I know this is this is something you and I don't agree. I still think there was fuckery afoot that went on with the election because I did see tons of signs and I drove, I try, I was still traveling everywhere, but that's all we'll, we'll get into that. That's a whole nother. So we don't want to get into that. We'll another subject, but, um, but I, I, I whether I, I'm, I'm, I'm still glad that it's going on. I'm still glad that I'm happy to see that journalists are pushing back. And I'm happy to see that, that in America, that we can do that because in other countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, if they even had journalists there anymore, which you know, you really don't speak out about the Taliban, but if you do be prepared for some definite repercussions, whether it's going to the gulag, <laughs> going to a prison or being killed, um, you can't speak out against governments in other countries. And we still can and, and speak out against our own government without any repercussions, except for maybe some social shaming on social media, which, you know, anymore, who gives a shit? I don't pay attention to any of the comments on social media anymore anyway. But um, here we can still do that. And that's why we still live in the greatest country in the world. And, and I, I'm happy to see those like Lester Holt and Jake Tapper. But then I also see the people on the right, the uh, 
uh, the Fox and Friends crew, uh, people are still speaking out, but they're speaking out and they're talking about the same thing against what we see now as a really as a government that is, I, this is the closest thing to a dictatorship I've ever seen in the U.S. government. And maybe I'm wrong and I haven't followed it much since I didn't really start getting into politics till I started deploying really. And I didn't even get into it then. I just started to pay attention to it more because it was in the forefront when you're downrange. I mean, AFN, it's always on, there's always something. And sometimes that's the only thing you have to watch. But um, I I see that maybe this is a good thing. Maybe the the lack of transparency in DC and within the FBI and CIA and so forth and their shenanigans and their fuckery that they're doing right now, maybe that's going to bring people together. Yeah, and bring groups that had different ideologies, different political ideologies. Maybe they're going to say, okay, well, you know, we need to start coming together and being journalists or being humanic and being Americans again, not a liberal American or conservative American. We just want to be Americans and we want our government to represent us and, and tell us the truth and be, have our backs, which honestly is a good segue into the, into the truckers. <laughs> Speaking of a government yeah, that doesn't, going on that on, doesn't have people's north. backs, let's talk about the Canadian, the Canadian government. Yeah, we we mentioned the uh, the Canadian truckers and the Freedom Convoy last week with Holly McKay, but there's been some updates to it. Really, I mean, they they were doing what they could to shut down the truckers. As uh, you know, for example, they were making it uh, noise ordinances with uh, you know making it illegal to honk and things like that. But now they've really taken it to a whole another level with the freezing of bank accounts under the uh, prime ministership of Justin Trudeau using the Terrorist Financing Act to target uh, financial support of Canadian truckers' uh, freedom convoy. And this is uh, this is pretty much unprecedented, I would say, to uh, to basically equate the Canadian truckers with a terrorist group. Um, and now, look, to be to be fair, and I and I always want to give uh as much to to all sides as I can, and and, and to be uh, to to give that devil's advocate, I could also feel for the people in Ottawa who have to live day and night with people honking, with people blocking traffic for others going to work. Um, at the same time, it's like if you don't have truckers, you have nothing. Yeah. Everything that we have is supplied by truckers. They were definitely the heroes during the pandemic for sure, um, and a lot of them uh, t- take that job because of the freedom that they get and that they they aren't forced by government to do much. And now they're being forced to take a vaccine. And a lot of them are taking a stand. So it's an interesting thing because how do you find a resolution in all this that, you know, you don't want them blocking traffic. You don't want honking going on day and night. At the same time, it's way overboard to label them a terrorist group. And also, uh, you know, they made it so that you couldn't donate on GoFundMe. GoFundMe took that down, which we talked about. And then they started sending sending Bitcoin. So now they're trying to stop that. And um, I mean, this is this is pretty when you talk about like a government dictatorship, this is something we've really never seen. And way overstepping Uh, Canadian, the the, whoever prime minister, I I call him and he is the kindergarten teacher that somehow is in charge of an entire nation. Um, Huge, huge over misstep, terrible leadership. Um, and uh, the Canadians, you guys need to make a change. Uh, you really do. Uh, you, you need somebody else. But getting away from that, t- truckers, they're the lifeline of, of any country. They're the lifeline of America. They're the lifeline of Canada, of course. And, and, and they work their asses off. And they are correct. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that you're going to get the mark of the beast if you get the vaccine. I'm not in that category. I don't. 
But I don't believe ever the government should step in and say, you have to put something in your body. It is a personal choice. And you've heard people say that all the time. I agree with that. I don't think I can say it any better than that. It's up to you and your doctor. If you don't have a doctor, start to adult and go find a doctor. If you still don't, and I didn't in college, I didn't have a primary care until I got under the VA system um, when I got out of the army. I, I still, there still are clinics and there still are emergency cares that I would go to that I, I'd, I'd go to if I needed to talk to somebody and there is a doctor there and I got to know them. So I guess essentially he was my primary care. If your doctor personally says that you have to get a vaccine. Okay, get it. If he says you don't, he or she says you don't, then you don't. Never should the government step in and say, you got to, you got to vaccinate. You got to put something in your body. You have to do something medically. It's a personal choice and everybody's different. And you and I are a perfect example where we both have had, I, I think I had COVID. I'm sure I did. I didn't go get, I, I was sick. I wasn't going to go get checks. Oh, I definitely have it. But you did have it and we had different effects because we're different people. I'm a little older, you're a little younger and you're you obviously more viral than I am. <laughs> um, and and to, to be to be fair, full disclosure, I also was vaccinated. Yeah, and that's the and see, and it, it 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 it's not that it's not that we've listened to the government and said, Hey, we need to get vaccinated. I talked to my doctor when I got sick and he says, do I, do I need to get vaccinated? So, well, you, it seems like you already had it. And he said, oh, yeah, while you're why, still yeah, yeah. So I was like, well, But I also, even before that, you know, my primary care here in Joplin, uh, he said, he did tell me, he goes, no, I, I says, I've been vaccinated. He goes, there's nothing wrong with it. This is what my doctor said to me. I said, well, should I get it? Because I'm 50. He goes, if you're not going to a state or a place that requires it, you don't need to get it. That was his exact words to me. And I, and I believe that he is a doctor. He is not a politician in D.C. He is somebody that deals. If the, if the government is listening, they're going to. They're gonna I don't know. Back. And, he, and <laughs> he works for the VA system. So you're going to have to come after the whole VA system, their government. So which is a government, <laughs> government arm, too. Isn't that ironic? But uh, guys, these are this is how it should have been done. And if it should have been done this way from the beginning, I honestly think there'd be no issue with vaccinations right now. Most people would have probably been vaccinated because their doctors would have told them to, and it would have been taken out of government hands. It never, not something like this should never be used for political purposes. And it was, and now it just caught fire. And now it's way out of control. Um, it was like, like they were trying to, uh, you know, control burn uh, areas. So there's not a forest fire down the line and they let it go out of control. And here we are. Um, I, I side with the truckers. I, I, you know, I, again, I don't have any issues with the, with the vaccinations. I don't, I think now majority of them are probably safe. I still say probably cause you know, you'll never know 20 years from now, if I have a dick growing out of my forehead, you can tell me I was wrong. Okay. I, I but I, I also don't agree that there ever should be a mandate by the U S government. This is a U or the Canadian, by the Canadian government. government. I'm sorry. And the U S government could definitely help this by stepping in and, Believe me, I don't think for a second that we don't have a ton of influence in Canada. And we do. And coming in at, and saying, hey, you guys need to knock this off. And my opinion, the way it ends is Trudeau, you know, stops being controlling little freak and says, hey, all right, we are not going to mandate this anymore. This is going to be a decision, a personal decision between the truckers and their doctors and their medical care professionals, which how it should have always been. Um that would be my my. But, and and also the the interesting part <laughs> with that that I should throw in there 
is is this plays into also the fact of Canadian? You said this earlier, Canadian. <laughs> I know. And, and now I said Canadian. <laughs> Canadians, Canada having a uh, national healthcare system and us not. So so there's there's a little bit of difference in there too. Um, under what you can do under a national healthcare system and and what you can't do under a privatized system. Um, that's probably more for the lawyers than myself, but that that also probably plays into it a little. Well, I, I maybe when this is all said and done, they'll look at that and they'll see. Again, this is what good leaders do. Let's look and see what happened. Is the universal healthcare system still good, or do we need to restructure this in a way if this ever happens again? Or in the U.S., we look at Canada and go, okay, is that universal healthcare system in a situation like this better? Than what we have from the private side, it, it, and I'm not. We're not going to get into that on this show, guys. Yeah, I mean, I think I think <laughs> both have major faults. We need to find something that's very different than probably what we have now and what's in and, Canada. And let's. I think there probably has to be some element of universal healthcare. I personally think this is just me, and probably some element of privatized healthcare. I know a lot of people are going to disagree with that. I, I think that th- there needs to be something of that effect because what we have now with you know kids having to like raise money for cancer treatments if they don't have the right health care is is horrible. And, and, you know, without me doing more research, I don't want to get into that now. I, I Without me, sure. I always put my foot in my mouth anyway when I do do research. So let me do some <laughs> research. But I, I sure. But that is something, again, where this we can always look for these things as opportunities to get better, to learn from a mistake or to learn from something that may not be working. But we don't do that. And when I say we, the governments don't do that because they always have to be right. I'm right. I'm always right. Fuck you. I'm right. No, you're not. Let's figure this out. Let's see what what is going good and what doesn't go, go well. And let's go as well and doesn't go well. Let's pick what goes well. The Ranger Battalion taught me that. Ranger Battalion, we really invented nothing on our own. If you go to the 75th Ranger Regiment, everything that we do, we have pulled from other units that was the best out of those units for us. That is where yeah. I learned that. There's the Rangers. We have, we don't make anything for ourselves. We just go and get trained by everybody else and say, hey, that is awesome. Let's do that. That is awesome. Let's do that. You know what? That's not really working. We don't want that. It's the same way we should do with everything, especially the government and especially with healthcare and especially in something like this. But no, we have to have so much ego, so much arrogance that we can't take a step back and go, all right, you know what? I'm wrong here. You're right. Let's do that instead. Like we do on the Battle Line podcast where me and Ian have our differences. But then in the end, it's like, you know what? That was right. Ian, let's go that way. You know, right, Tano? You know what, Tano? That was correct. Let's go this way. And it, it just makes a better organization. And and then, honestly, everybody's on the same page and it takes the ego out of it. And uh, I, so, but truckers, going back to the truckers, guys. I stand with you. Uh, again, I, I'm not a, I'm I'm not against the vaccine, but I am against government mandates. And there's no way in hell a government should tell you what you should put you what you should be able to put in your body. Um, but um, if you feel like getting the vaccine, question for you though, yeah. right? Because I I stand with the truckers as well. However, do you think that the most effective way of getting their message across, and maybe it's because they feel that they can't get their message across any other way, is blocking off traffic, honking day and night in Ottawa. Um, and you know, really it's, it's changing business. I I don't know, because, you know, when you just have a peaceful protest, sometimes your message gets completely lost and you have to do something a little bit more extreme and look, they're not burning down neighborhoods, they're not being violent. However, 
you know, I could understand how it's a nuisance for the people. That well, I, I, I think truckers are smart enough to know that, that again, countries rely on that. Just like the farmers could strike and say, hey, we're not giving you any more food if they ever mandated farmers to get vaccines too. But luckily farmers don't fall underneath those categories. I think this is the way that they can get their point across because I, I do believe they wanted to make a scene. Let's make this an issue. This is going to be a huge issue because we're going to be out blocking traffic. We're not getting our goods and services to people. They need it. So I, I wouldn't know. You know what? I don't know a better way to do it if I was a trucker, but I'm not a trucker either. So I don't know what other options are out there. But looking at it from their point of view, trying to. Yeah, I, I, I think it is because you are making a spectacle, which I, they wanted to do. You're right. They're not burning built. They're not burning buildings. They're not destroying businesses. They're not tipping over cars. They're not doing anything destructive. They're being a nuisance, which is something they want to do because that's going to speed up people to complain to the government, which is going to make them want to make make remedy this. But uh, I, 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 and they're they're stopping goods and services coming in. So they're seeing that the government is saying, wait a second, we can't take these guys lightly. Our lifeblood re relies on these people. Our survival relies on these truckers. So, I, I mean, I, I, I guess if you and I sat down, I bet you and I could probably think of something. But just off the cuff, if you ask me that question, I, I don't think there is a better way at this point in time. I, you know, and, and I think they, they did what they had to do. And I, 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 I think they're getting their point across. Um, and they're also the, the, it's forcing the Canadian people, whether this was intended to or not, brother, I, it's forcing the Canadian people to see the true colors of their current government, that they are willing to take just un egregious, egregious. I'll pull that from Ricky Bobby there, Talladega Nights, egregious <laughs> steps to, to stop this. Claiming they're terrorists? Are you kidding me? Suspending their bank accounts? You motherfucker. I'm, are you kidding me? I Canadian Canadian I did it too damn it Canadian um, <laughs> Canada you you need to make a change if anything comes out of this you need to make a change and get new leadership because your leadership is my opinion from the U.S. looking in uh, with this scenario here my opinion and you guys a lot of people have already said Tano go fuck yourself I don't want to listen to you that's fine my opinion is you need to make a change in your leadership because it's 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 failing you um but like I said, the, the, what's the positives out of this? Well, let's find out what we can do better. Let's let's no more mandates that shouldn't be put up there. Um, let's see if our healthcare systems what works better. Now we got to we can test these things. But then you added something as well from uh, you said from oh yeah from Congress yeah, from Congress from Crenshaw. Congressman Crenshaw who you and I both you know we have our misgivings about him. We I don't really care for him, but. You did say he, he he gave a great valid option. And I don't know if you want to talk about that. I, I think it's a great. Yeah, he, he put out there. He was saying to Canadian truckers that we currently have this uh, work visa program. And at the same time, the U.S. has a current trucker shortage. So he's saying you could use that to your advantage and, and come over here. And we'd like to welcome in those truckers. It's kind of similar to what, to what Ron DeSantis did with, uh, you know, police officers in New yeah. York and elsewhere that that had the same situation. You said, hey, come over here and we'll give you a bonus. So I, I think that is a viable solution. If someone really needs to uh, to maintain their life, they need to have this job. Yeah. But they're really um for whatever reason, they personally don't want to get this vaccine. This could be a really viable option to come here to the U.S. And I think you still are probably going to get your point across because now Canada is going to have a shortage of truckers. So the goods and services still aren't going to be getting there. And you're not, you know, you're you're not backlogging traffic. And and um 
and you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, um, backlogging traffic is minor to me, but if it was me in that neighborhood, yeah, I'd be pretty pissed. <laughs> I'd be like, damn it guys. But I would also be putting pressure. On Imagine us recording battle. Know, podcast and all you heard was honking, but it'd be driving us. But, nuts, but, so. but yeah, it, it's, it's minor in the grand scheme of things of where I've seen protests completely go awry where there has been death sure. deaths. But uh, I, I think it's a great, at least someone is, is trying to find a positive option out of this. For at least the United States, it's a positive option. And for the truckers, I, I feel it's a positive option. But maybe there's more into it that we just don't know about regulations and so forth that if they came, I, I don't know, I, would they take a pay cut? Would they not get as much work? Are they going to have to fall under more stipulations because they're Canadian and not you know American citizens? Um, but uh, at, at face value, it looks like a, a, a great option, an option for them if they don't want to do it. Hey, come work for us. And we're, we, you know. We got. We could use more truckers and more people getting out there and getting our goods and services to us. It makes our economy and our country stronger. We're able to have all those things out there to us. It makes us. It makes us a stronger country, and people can get. We got food on the shelves and 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 creature comforts, and everybody's happier. Don't think for a second that it doesn't make us a stronger country. Being happy makes you stronger than being miserable. It does, and and it gives them an option to continue to work and provide for their families. Yeah. And, and you know what else this reminded me of? Um, I dug up an old clip of when Alex Jones was on the nice show one. because he talked about how he had the same situation years before this at this point where he couldn't open a bank account. He's like, despite having great credit, despite having no issues in the past with me not paying bills or anything like that. They were there's banks who are saying we will not, you know, open a bank. A lot of people rolled their eyes at and, that, too. They didn't believe me. Yeah. And, and he he even kind of said, like, I am a test run for this. He's like, I realized to these people, you know, who see me in the media. He said something where he was like, I'm Satan, dude. something like that. <laughs> but but it, it's true. You know, I think a lot of people are like, eh, Alex Jones, whatever. He's a nut job. That's how some people see him. But when you do this now to an entire group of truckers who probably are the most important probably the most important occupation at a time like this where we need for all goods and services, we need those guys. I think a lot more mainstream Canadians and Americans are going to say, Hey, this is not okay. And labeling them as terrorists. I guarantee you with the Unabomber and, and the bombs that we see going off overseas with truck bombs and things, these guys have been vetted. I think they're the private as far as the only people that would be, considered the least amount of being a terrorist or the less likely to be a terrorist would be U.S. service members. <laughs> these guys are vetted. I mean, can you imagine if they didn't vet a lot of these truckers uh, because uh, how easy it would be to to roll into a city and blow up your truck with, with your car? Guy, uh, I don't know how they even get away with calling these guys. To, how, how is it? I don't I guess I'm asking you that question because I don't know how, under what context could you say these People are, you say these truckers, these hardworking people, probably some of the most patriotic people within the respective countries are, how can you call them terrorists and get away with it and then be able to pull their bank accounts? That is, that's criminal. To me, that's criminal by the, by the Canadian government. That's, that's, that is somebody shouldn't, they should be thrown in prison for that shit. That's just, oh, that's unbelievable to me. I, I, I don't know, brother. I, I, I just, I don't know what pretext you could call a trucker, a terrorist uh, at all. These guys are probably least likely to be terrorists. Um, if, if, if it was so easy to be a trucker and to not be vetted, 
believe me, we would have saw a truck bomb somewhere in Canada. Damn it. In Canada, <laughs> in Canada or the United States, um, you know, yeah. since the Unabomber, when was that? With And that was a rental vehicle, but when was that? 20, 30 years ago. Um, Are you thinking of, uh, unless I'm getting it wrong, because, I mean, Tim McVeigh used a truck, but I... I did the Unabomber? Well, do not, that? He, I don't, wasn't I don't he part? Wasn't he part of that the whole? Or McVeigh was McVeigh, and it, this is why we have Ian because I get shit like this wrong all the time. Um, I, I just think the Unabomber was sending packages just, in the mail. Was, if was I, he, if I remember was he correctly, an inspiration but, to McVeigh? That maybe I'm tying the two together, and, not, and I shouldn't be. Uh, no, I, the, the the inspiration because I I'll be honest, I know less about the Unabomber. I know he was um you know a professor at UC yeah. Berkeley. Uh, uh, genuinely, and I'm not saying this is a positive about him. I'm just uh, saying it you know as a matter of fact, brilliant guy. Well, you no, know, regardless he, he of was. what he did. No. But um, Tim McVeigh, his acts were really inspired more so actually by what happened at um uh. Uh, what's it called? The Waco. Waco. Well, that, what happened uh, at Waco uh, David Koresh, you're right. With yeah, okay. with David Koresh. And the thing is, he felt it was an overreach of government. And the interesting thing about McVeigh, you know, who who was a veteran, yeah. is that uh, you know, if you look at, at what he believed and stuff, look, there's no what he did. Completely no defense for, uh, of course. Um, but one th- interesting thing is, he did not know there were children in those buildings. His his um, what he wanted to do was honestly kill. Government employees, government agents. He did not mean to kill children. However, that's no excuse because he did. And and that's if you're going to have a bomb Um, of that size, the residual damage is 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 you know yeah um, collateral damage, I should say. And again, see, I'm wrong. I but not not a trucker though. Not not a a trucker. trucker. (laughs) And and this is why we have Ian and on this year because I I was wrong. I messed up. See how easy it is, government officials. See how easy it is to say (laughs) I was wrong. Ian got it right. Now, you know, and we can move on from that. But you're, you're spot on. And that's what I'm saying. I, I just don't get where, by what definition does does the Canadians, because the Canada, the Canadians have, <laughs> the Canadians have to call these guys terrorists and to do this to them, aside from just being control asshole freaks that want to mandate vaccines because just a, you're just a little, little man, Trudeau. I'm sorry to say, bro. I, I, I I, I, it's 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 criminal to me taking a work away from these guys and, and these men and women that that are truckers on the road that are again they they are the lifeline they supply countries and keep countries moving they're one of the one of the mainstays that work their asses off are away from their families a lot and sacrifice a lot of their lives to make sure our our country and to make sure of Canada to make sure the that we have food on our shelves and have the creature comforts and here you go, treat them like shit. So it's, it's terrible. Yeah, and yeah, I, I fully agree. But now I wanted to make sure I have all my facts correct on the unit. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I probably screwed because it up. I screwed it up. I'm sure. I want, no, I wanted to make sure I had this right. The interesting thing about the guy, youngest professor ever hired by UC Berkeley. And and the way that I uh, know that, believe it or not, is there's a song by Ill Bill, the rapper, oh, yeah. about the U- about the Unabomber, and it's like a biography on the Unabomber. It's a great, it's a great song. It's, a, I mean, I didn't know much about the Unabomber until I listened to that song. Uh, that's when rap was good, dude. That's when rap. Well, it's not that long ah, ago. Come on. How long ago was it? How long ago was it? Let me see. Ill Bill, exploding octopus. Guys, check out that song if you've never heard it. It's a great. I mean, it's a great like historical 
you know, song about, you know, just an important it's, Okay, you're history, right. You're right. It's not positive or it's negative. Not, but 20, 2013. Oh, 2013. It's, well, still, it's nine years ago. It's not, yeah, it's still not as good as the 90s rap and early 2000s. I, you know, I, I wouldn't still compare him to Bushwick Bill back from the old. Uh, the, oh, Bill, yeah, that, who died yeah, a couple yeah, of years that, ago. Boy, those guys, man. Then him, Scarface, and Willie D. Those guys, that, that's some rappers right there. That's back when rap was good. That was the, and they were, that was a Texas rap, man. Those guys were from Houston and they were, man. But do they have a song about the, <laughs> no, they don't see that's we're getting off. So see, here I am. I'm like, again, I'm a cat chasing a light. I'm just all over the place. It's me too. I'm, I'm <laughs> off subject here. I mean, we, we got to get to Tom Young, but, uh, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to say. I know you were saying as well, like the Joe Rogan stuff you wanted well, to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I don't know if you I, want to get I, into I'm it not at a all, fan but. of Joe Rogan. I never have been. Um, but you know, I, I here's the government trying to control what gets out there. And you have somebody that has more listeners than all the major media combined. And here you go, the government saying, Hey, you, not so many words, but in so many words, Hey, you know, Spotify needs to censor and get control of more of, and they may not have said censor, but that's what they meant. Everybody that has half a brain knows that. No, they need to, they need to start policing. It's the same thing. Come on. You know, Tomato, tomato, tomatoes, a tomato, tomato, whatever you say. But there it is again. Control. How do you control a country? And this is how all of them do. Dictators or countries like the Taliban that have you know, countries like Afghanistan and now have the Taliban control. You you control that narrative. And luckily for us, you and I have been preaching this forever. This is why podcasts, when we started saying this a year ago, are so important because they cannot police that narrative. Um they still kind of are. How many you told me they pulled? I didn't even know this. They pulled a hundred shows of his or they pulled a lot. But I, the thing is, I think a lot of that is Joe doing it to himself. And also the fact that Joe, I think made a mistake in signing to Spotify. But when you sign a hundred million dollar deal, you're going to compromise. On you, you have to do, you're just going to cave. And, and we talked about it with Adam Kokesh long before the current controversy, because Adam was on with Rogan and they deleted Adam's episode. And, and Hey, you know, cause I know this is the current controversy. No one said the N word. No one used any racial language. Adam is just, and you know, we've had him on the show. Adam's just a controversial guest. Adam is a guy who would label himself anti-government. Adam is a guy who's anarcho-capitalist and, and yeah, he's controversial. He's also a Marine veteran, but he he has a voice, and like we were happy to have him it was on. Awesome, yeah, it's awesome. What, yeah. what what as I dug a little bit more into this because I, you know, I I just didn't know a lot of what was going on aside from just the headline C. Joe wrote. It, it made no sense to me because the the people that he had on that were disagreeing with the vaccine, these guys are reputable people. It wasn't like he pulled somebody off the street yeah. that didn't. It was people in those fields that know they're doctors and scientists that are in those fields yeah that, this is the thing that i think people who have never listened to the show get wrong they seem to think that joe rogan's show is just joe rogan like literally just going don't get the vaccine <laughs> it's you know because i told you so and that's not what the show is like i know the episodes that were controversial was peter mccullough who i think wrote like the most peer-reviewed studies on the subject and then he had um he had dr robert moses on who who look 
I think a little bit of uh, inflation in his biography personally, and I don't know, but when he says he's the sole inventor of mRNA technology, I think that's a little yeah. bit inflated. I don't think anybody is the sole inventor of anything like that. I think it takes, you know, I think it's, it takes a team. It's, you've, you've seen it. You've seen it in, in your yeah. own profession. I think people take credit for too much sometimes, not to even take a shot at him because I like the guy, but I think like the same way people hated the fact that when Rob O'Neill came oh, out, yeah. he said, I said, not, not the team shot. That's Lott, what I was going to you know? say. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like, Rob O'Neill saying, I, and it, whether he said it or not, it was interpreted this way that he killed Bin Laden. No, well, no, there was actually a whole team that did that, Rob. And I'm not going to knock because I'm sure Rob. No, I, and I like the yeah. guy. I, I, I personally like him. I, I talk to him, but I understand the controversy there. And that's why the same thing with Dr. Robert Moses. Look, he's a, re, he's a reputable guy. I also think there might be some financial incentive when he goes on the show and he says, get on Getter, Joe. And then he went on Michael Savage and he pr promoted the, the social media site Getter a bunch of times. So I, I take everything with a grain of salt. However, he's still a reputable yeah. doctor, works in the field. And um, he knows what he's talking about. As you said, they were, he's not bringing on random people and to he, talk and about And he did this. bring on dissenting yeah. opinion. He brought on the Gupta, the guy from... Sanjay yeah, Gupta, I, yeah. And he, and he out-debated. Yeah, he did. He did. And he, he got Gupta to admit to admit that... What was the chlor... Help me out with the... the, the oh, uh, that, that ivermectin is not horse exactly. So I... And you know what? And to be threatened by by musicians from the sixties that come on, like guys, let's be honest. They have probably injected any, everything and anything into their bodies <laughs> over the years with, with, uh, what's his, um, Neil, Neil Young. However, I, could I, no, give you, you a little bit go of, ahead. No. I don't know if you know the full backstory and I don't know. I don't, I wasn't prepared I, to talk about this. So I believe Neil Young got polio or something like that as a kid as a result of, uh, you know, not having a vaccine at the time. So I think because of his own personal experience, he is extremely pro vaccine. And I understand that as well. But, but that's polio. That's not what we have now. And saying I'm going to pull my stuff because these reputable doctors and, and scientists are saying that, hey, man, the vaccine doesn't work, which we all know now that it's not going to stop you from getting COVID. Everybody knows that and their mom knows that. That was too far. Don't don't use that experience to, to to really your polio experience. Which hey, okay, you had it, you didn't get the vaccine. Okay, sorry, man. Yeah, well, no, it's not that he. So I pulled it up. At least this is uh, the first thing I pulled up on here. So I, hopefully it's reputable. But it says Young suffered from polio in 1952 during the last major outbreak of the disease in Ontario when he was five years old. There was no vaccine at the time. He underwent a lumbar puncture that, as he says, hurt like hell and scared me to death before revealing the moment his doctor confirmed he had contracted polio. So I, here's the thing. I, I agree with what you're saying. These are two different vaccines. At the same point, just, you know, understanding from his perspective, and I don't think Joe Rogan should be the enemy for this, but I think in his perspective, hey, I had to over I had to overcome a lot through polio. And had there been a vaccine at the time, maybe I wouldn't have had to experience this. So he's saying, hey, go out and get the vaccine. And I don't want people discouraging that. So I, I But did he just do it to that level or did he take it to the extreme of I'm going to pull all my music on here because this son of a bitch is telling everybody to not get vaccines instead of, you know what, if he would have just, again, here it comes down to the extremes. If he just would have said just what you said, okay, I get where he's coming from. That makes sense. All right. that may, But going, ah, oh, that son of a bitch is telling everybody not to get vaccines. He's the, he's the, he's the devil. Now everybody's going to die of COVID because nobody's getting vaccines. And maybe he didn't say that. Maybe he was just embellished that way by again, the media. 
it's where we could have stopped it in the get go. If, if it just would have been, why are you saying this, Mr. Neil Young, that have done a ton of drugs in your life? Um, no, I'm sorry. I, I went too far on that one. I shouldn't. I, okay. But anyway. As you know, I, I honestly don't know. I, you know, I, I guess that's just the 60s, 60s stereotype and singers from back 60s and 70s. Yeah, I'm not going to say, I mean, because I just don't know if he did or not. Uh, you know what? Maybe he did. Now, I will put that that he did. Let's just say he did. But regardless, coming out and just saying, this is why I feel this way, works a lot better than saying, I'm going to pull all my stuff from Spotify because Joe Rogan is saying that that people don't need vaccines. No, you're controlling a narrative again. Tell the people why. People will understand. People, a person is not dumb. When people get together in groups and we get this group think, that's when we become dumb. And in this case, it's a group think coming together of those that want to control a narrative, still push a vaccine to maintain control of people, obviously, instead of just coming out and saying, this is why I feel this way. And then a person can listen to that. And I understand, okay, you know what, Neil, I get it. This is why you said, I understand it. I still don't agree with you and thinking the vaccine needs to be for everybody, but I understand your feelings now. That makes, okay, I got it. It's just like if somebody said, hey, there's a cure for ulcerative colitis if I would have got a vaccine back in and I didn't, maybe I would feel different. Granted, there's still no cure for ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, so that's not going to happen. Um, but I, I be having an affliction that damn near killed me and, and dude, made me for, the, for a year of my life feel like I was going to not be able to get out of bed ever again. Um, I get the sickness aspect of it, but you got to do it in such a way. And I don't know. Did he say that? And did the media just run with it? Maybe he did say that. And the media just went, no, I, took I, off with it. I could give you a little bit more background, but while you were talking, I did want to see just because I look, I always no, want to get things accurate or not. I had no idea if, if uh, young had any background in drugs or not. So here's what I found. This is what it says. And this is from uh, far yeah, out. And also remember there was also Janice Joplin as well was the other one. I think that I heard, but she's dead. She can't. No, who was it? Then really who was it? There was another one. Oh, you're talking about. Uh, I now I have to find Janis Joplin. She's dead. dead. Okay, well that's why. That's why I was like, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe she came. Back um, but it says in a 1988 interview with Rolling Stone, Young set about dispelling this myth once and for all. Asked his thoughts on drugs with regards to his druggy image. Young responded, "That's a myth. I mean, how how would I have kept this together for so long if I was on drugs? It'd be impossible." You cannot do what I've done if you were into drugs. I mean, I used a few drugs. I smoked a lot of grass in the 60s, continued to smoke grass in the 70s and dabbled around in other drugs. But I never got hooked on, you know, never got out of hand with the harder drugs. I experimented, but I think I'm basically a survivor. I've never been an alcoholic, never used heroin. So I just don't want to put that out there, you know, oh, that's, if that's his take. That on. is the but beauty the, uh, of the Battle Live podcast is we do these things actually in front of you on the show. So you can either roll your eyes at me or Ian, but at least one of us is going to get the facts out there and the truth. It's most of the time it's Ian because he's a great researcher. I'm just lazy. Well, so I'll let it up. I mean, look, it's a quick Google search, but the, uh, the two things that I'll, I'll point out there, that's kind of interesting when you're talking about the pulling your music from Spotify, Neil Young, just like so many artists in the past year or two, sold the rights to most of his catalog or at least maybe half of his catalog to a third party. So he doesn't even have the rights oh. to his whole catalog. And he had to ask on this guy's behalf. 
And these people like Crosby and Nash, yeah. the other members, um, are saying, oh, I'm going to pull my music. And it's like, not so fast. You already sold your music. And once you sell, sell the rights to your music, yeah. the owner could put the music wherever they want. So the second thing I was going to mention that's been the big news in the past couple of days is quietly, from what I'm seeing, hopefully this is accurate, Neil Young's uh, music is back on Spotify. Oh, is it? Throughout all, all that. It all comes down to the mighty dollar, man. It, come on. And really, are you going to get rid of Joe Rogan? And how many? I, I heard it on the rate when I, when I was driving. 11 million he has listeners to his show or something. I don't know. Something like that. Around are there, you though, really yeah. going to pull that guy? I mean, he is I, I'm not a fan of Joe Rogan. As you guys all listen to Battleline Podcast, you know, you know, I say it all the time. I don't have any bet ill will against him. I, I, I think he does a good job. I just, I just, you know, it's just not a fan. It's, I just, it's not my cup of tea. But you know, that many listeners, they really Spotify really going to get rid of Joe Rogan? No, and I believe he could have probably done more to. To stand up and say, hey, you know what? Just like we said, hey, I didn't put anything else out there that wasn't from a subject matter expert in that field. I wasn't, I didn't ask Alec Jones to talk to me about the vaccine and the intricacies of why it's not effective. Granted, I'm sure Alex has his own opinion on that, which you obviously, but he put the subject matter experts and he also does get dissenting opinions from what I saw. He does get people from all sides of the aisle. And from what I understand, help me out, Ian, and I don't know, maybe we'll Google this as well. He's not a conservative at all. He's, he's, no, he's, no, no. He, he voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary yeah, or, or, or he said he was going to support him in the general election if he got nominated. So um, he is a believer in like national health care. He's he's a believer in universal basic income. You know, I think I don't think he's a liberal either, though. He's he's I, I think someone like me. I mean, I I really don't use those labels anymore for myself because it depends on what issue we're talking. And, and he's just he's just a free thinker, a person that believes in what he believes in. And and to me, whether I like a show or not, that's admirable. That was always admirable for somebody that, but in this case here, I do feel like he could have stuck to his guns even more because he is that power, whether he realizes it or not, he is that powerful in the media industry. He's huge. Probably one of the most powerful. Which is why I think he could have remained independent and, and still, still made tens of millions of dollars instead of a hundred. Well, maybe dollars. we need to start our own like podcast line and get his ass over to us, dude. That's, yeah, dude. It'll be that easy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, that being said, again, uh, it, it what we're going back to, it's great. This is why we, on a positive side, to end on a positive side, at least on my end, um, it's that's why podcasts are so important. That's why having independent podcasts are so important is because you're not allowing the government, which we see every day now, wants to control the narrative because we control the narrative and it turns into propaganda. You control the people. This doesn't allow that to happen. And that is why podcasts, whether you're a Joe Rogan or you're a Battleline podcast, you're doing your part, making sure that the narrative can't be controlled by the U S government. And you can, and, and, and we're really, we're really validating why this country is so great because of freedom of speech and, and why the first amendment is so fantastic and why the constitution is so fantastic and why this country is so is the greatest country still don't care what you people say. It's still the greatest country in the world to live in because of these freedoms that we have, man. So um, I, I don't want I want to end up on a positive with all this because I do think there's a positive a silver lining out of all this that's going on 
that if you took a step back, you can see it transforming that way. Um, if you can remain positive and, and learn from the mistakes that we're making and turning into something that makes us stronger, which I do think that, that, that it's, we can, we're going that route. Um, we just got to keep going that route and it's going to take some hiccups and some stumbles and some falls. But when you still fall down, what do you do, son? That's what my dad used to tell me. What do you do when you fall off that horse, son? Well, you get back on, you keep riding, you learn what you did wrong and why you fell off. And then you get back on, you don't do it again. So you don't fall off again. This is what we're doing. And and I do see it happening in a positive way, but it's going to take some bumps. You, you've seen, you've, I know you're a movie guy. You've seen Zoolander. <laughs> I love right? Zoolander. Okay, I love Zoolander. Am I missing something? What do you say? I'm, I'm just, no, I'm thinking of, remember the part where Maury says to Derek, he's like, what do we do when we fall off the horse? What, what, and then long pause. What did, we get back on the horse. And then remember Derek, he's, he's like, sorry, I'm not a gymnast, Maury. <laughs> oh, Maury, that his dad, the, Jerry Stiller said that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love Zoolander, dude. Cause, cause, you know, that's kind of my mentality right there, too. You know, I, what? Is this a school for ants? It's also a, a Zoolander. <laughs> dude, ben Stiller, awesome. Still love all his stuff. I, actually, I just watched the Royal Tenenbaums. I love Wes Anderson movies. I love, I think Wes Anderson movies are are outstanding. The only guy that makes better movies is Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie and Wes Anderson, completely different genre of movies. Two of my favorite directors. Uh, and Ben Stiller was in Rural Tannenbaums and he was awesome in that again. I, he, he's, he just is so funny and I don't know how he's funny, but he just is. And that Zoolander's, yeah, come on, man. That's like, I can't turn left. I, he can't turn left or he can only turn <laughs> one of the greatest movies ever. After, if yeah. you ever feel down, go, go watch either Starsky and Hutch or Zoolander with those two, with uh, with uh, Owen Wilson and and uh, and um and Ben Stiller guys, because you're right. Zoolander replicates life as best that it can in a funny way. It is uh, love it. Zoolander, or, or go watch the Adam Sandler movie where he's the he's the Mossad agent. Um, oh yeah, the uh, uh, Don't mess with Where's that? Was that the right one? Yeah. Don't mess with another terrible movie, but so terrible it's funny. It's hilarious. So. Yeah, awesome. Oh, you made me smile, brother. I can see you later. I love Blue Steel. Always going to have Blue Steel. We got to do another film video with you and I doing Blue Steel one of these days. Maybe we'll do it. Okay. Gonna get, we'll do an Instagram post here or what's that? We'll do an Instagram live. Okay. I, I'm talking too much. You're getting me spun up. All right. No, no, no. We're good. So before we get to Tom Young, I was actually speaking with Ryan Duvier over at Fort Scott Munitions and he sent me some info. So I'm going to have to like figure out exactly how we're going to promote this. So I'm just going to say that as of right now, there's going to be an event May 6th and 7th that's going to basically be the Fort Scott training um, facility in conjunction with Battleline Tactical. Yeah, um, and I'm really excited. For I, I hope you get to come, man. Uh, for, we're going to call it, they're going to call it Fort Defense, and it's going to be Battleline's home training area uh, here in Fort Scott, Kansas. And it's uh, I can call it the golden. It's going to be the golden ticket course. So basically what we're going to do and what Ryan, Ryan's tremendous, wonderful, wonderful person. You'll meet him if you ever get down to any of these training events is uh, just like Willy Wonka. You know, I'm a, I'm a big goof and I love Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And so does Ryan. Ryan is a bigger goof than I am. And it was, well, let's let's do that. Let's do a golden ticket where if you buy a case of ammo, there's going to be 15 golden tickets put in these cases of ammo. And if you get one, well, you get to come to the course for free and, and at the, at the, you know, at the cost of, of battle line and, and Fort Scott, Fort Scott munitions, uh, primarily Fort Scott munitions. They're, they're the one, they're the brains by the operations. I just show up and try to train. 
But I think it's cool. I think it's going to be something that's really, really neat to do. And it was a great idea. And I can't take any credit for it. It's Ryan's Ryan Duvier's idea. Tremendous. So once they start promoting it, guys, just start paying attention. Get on the Fort Scott Munitions website and sign up for emails. And you'll be the first ones to start to see when they're going to start actually putting the golden tickets in the cases and what ammo cases, what calibers they'll put it in. So uh, yeah, definitely go to Fort Scott Munitions and get on their email list. So you can be the first ones to see um, what will be, uh, when it's going to be available to to start buying and you're going to be able to win that golden ticket. Yeah. I I know the ticket sales are going to start on March March 1st. So we'll hash things out on here to give you some more info, but there's going to be a ton of people there, including guns out TV, Hank strange, (laughs) uh, Jesse Fenley and more to come. Uh, a bunch of participating sponsors, Daniel Defense, E3 Camping, Gun Owners of America, GOA, Tactical Shit. So, yeah, check it out, yeah. guys. And just go to uh, also, if you want to check out their merch, as always, fortscottmunitions.com, and you'll get 15% off when you use the promo code BATTLELINE. You could also go to the dealer locator there, and you could find a dealer for Fort Scott Munitions by you. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BattleLine Tactical, and battle line podcast also one of our great sponsors of course is bubs naturals they're the they're one of a kind when it comes to collagen protein because they're single sourced and uh also the fact there's no blending it's just Mm grass-fed cowhide that's the one ingredient and they have the element of giving back they give back 10 percent on all of their products to the glenn doherty memorial foundation which as we're seeing is helping uh, military members and family members of military members, special operations veterans in particular, attend college and, and higher education. So they're doing great things. And, and the product is outstanding. You and I stand by it, and we've been with them. I, you help me with my time, brother. You're my, you know, I can't pay attention to time for shit. But been using the product for over a year, and guys, yeah. I, I, I'm it, it definitely makes a difference in your lifestyle healthy lifestyle makes you uh, it's strong. It does. It's got the protein in there. So it's you're building muscle mass, uh, but you're building lean muscle mass because it's that collagen protein. My skin's better. My hair's better. Uh, my fingernails grow. Uh, guys, it's, it's, it's outstanding stuff. If you're going to use any kind of protein at all, I would highly recommend Bub's Naturals over anything out there. And especially if you're just sticking with collagen, it's the best collagen protein out there. And it, it, it dissolves well in all the hot drinks. Coffee, it's in my coffee right now. And it's fantastic stuff. So Bub's Naturals, best collagen protein, best protein, in my opinion, on the market today. And like you said, supporting the GDMF Foundation, um, Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. You know, their, their hearts are in the right place too. Massive amount of integrity, tremendous product. Enough said. Check them out, guys. BubsNaturals.com. Promo code BATTLELINE, and you're going to receive 20% off. Once again, BubsNaturals.com. Promo code BATTLELINE. So joining us for the first time on BATTLELINE podcast is Tom Young, West Virginia Air National Guard vet with over 20 years of service. Retiring in 2013, uh, Young served in Iraq and Afghanistan and flew combat missions to Bosnia and Kosovo. And he's the author of various books, both fiction and nonfiction. And the latest book, which I'm holding, is Red Burning Sky. It's got a great quote on the cover from Vince Flynn, one of the most exciting new thriller talents in years. Uh, And this is available now on Kensington Books. It's historical fiction based on the World War II aviation uh, true story of Operation Halyard. And uh, with that, it's, it's an honor to have you on, sir. Well, thanks so much. It's uh, an honor to get to uh, talk to you gentlemen and your audience. I certainly appreciate that. 
And uh, as you mentioned, my new novel, Red Burning Sky, is inspired by a real-life event from World War II, Operation Halyard, which was the rescue of more than 500 downed Allied flyers, mainly American flyers, in Yugoslavia in 1944. And it's one of the lesser-known corners of World War II history. In fact, I often refer to it as the greatest military rescue you've never heard of. And I find that even a lot of World War II buffs have not heard of this one. And there's some reasons why uh, you may not have heard of it, and we can get into that in a little bit. But perhaps the first question that might come to uh, a listener's mind is, is, wait a minute, what were 500 downed American flyers doing on the ground in Yugoslavia to begin with? How did that happen? Well, the answer to that has everything to do with the target they were trying to hit. These were mainly bomber crews, mainly crews of B-17 Flying Fortresses, B-24 Liberators, and they had been sent to hit the German-run oil refineries at Ploesti, Romania. World War II was the first truly mechanized war, and that's why the Allied Command took the decision that the uh, one of the best ways to stop Hitler's mechanized army would be to try to starve it of fuel. So these refineries became a high-priority target. And for obvious reasons, they became a heavily defended target. Uh, The Germans defended these targets, uh, these refineries ferociously with anti-aircraft artillery uh, and smoke screens over the refineries and fighter aircraft around the refineries. And over time, a lot of bombers went down. And I do mean over time, this wasn't just one big raid. There was a large initial raid, but then raids continued for months after that. The bombers would damage the refineries. The Germans would make repairs and put them back online. The bombers would come back. And uh, over these months, a lot of aircraft went down. The bombers' egress and ingress routes to and from the target took them over Yugoslavia. And to be more specific, the routes took them over uh, a region of Serbia called Ravna Gora. And that's where a lot of the crew members of these stricken aircraft bailed out. And when they did so, they found themselves parachuting into a very complicated situation on the ground. At that time in Yugoslavia, you had a civil war in the middle of a world war. You had two main guerrilla factions. You had the non-communist royalist Chetniks led by General Draza Mihaljevic. Uh, And then you had the communist-leaning partisans led by Tito and favored by the Soviet Union. And... When these two groups were not fighting Germans, they were fighting each other. And, of course, history tells us that eventually the partisans won and Tito formed a communist government in Yugoslavia. But to get back to World War II, both of these sides helped shelter American airmen. But it was mainly the Chetnik side that was instrumental in making Operation Halyard a success. And uh, these, these guerrillas and the villagers who supported them were very brave and very generous in uh, their support of our airmen. Uh, very brave in that, you know, they hid them in barns and stables and haylofts and attics and anywhere they could put them. And you can imagine what would have happened to a farm family if the SS or the Gestapo had caught them uh, sheltering Allied flyers. And they were also generous because it's important to remember these folks were poor to begin with. And now they have all these extra mouths to feed literally falling out of the sky, but still they did whatever they could for our airmen. But over time, 
as the numbers of downed airmen grew into the hundreds, the situation just became unsustainable. It was just, just a matter of time before the Germans were going to catch on and sweep through that area. And if that had happened, you know, if they had come through probing every haystack with bayonets, the flyers would have become POWs and the people who supported them would have become dead. So something had to change. So the forerunner of the CIA, uh, the U.S. Office of Strategic Services, uh, came up with a plan to parachute agents into Ravnagora to have them coordinate an effort to have the, to have the flyers and the villagers build dirt airstrips by hand so that C-47s, military version of the DC-3, could come in and land in German-occupied territory and pick these guys up and fly them out to Italy. And as impossible as that sounds, they did it. They pulled it off. The whole thing was a stunning success. What led you to wanting to write Red Burning Sky? Because, yeah, I never heard of this before. And I, I'm a pretty war, I'm a war buff, I'm, especially World War II, Vietnam War. Those are the things that led me to join the Army Rangers was reading about Colonel Darby or reading about the Rangers in Vietnam. And and through all those, I, I you know, of course, uh, my grandfather on my dad's side was a, was a was a uh, gunner on one of the um, uh, one of the bombers he had in World War II, and he was shot down and died before uh, before I got to know him. But you know, what was your reasoning, and where did you figure, find this? I know you're in the air, air the uh, the you, know, you fly, you're the you're one of the airmen. You retired twenty years in, but what made you say, hey, you know what? I want to talk about this. I want to discuss it. Nobody's ever discussed it before. And then why did you find out that it hadn't been discussed before? It hadn't been put out in the in the spotlight more so because to me this would be a heck of a recruiting tool and these are the stories that young guys like myself uh, would have wanted to hear about coming in this is the, the heroism stories the sacrifice the the civilian sacrifice and also of course the 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 destruction of infrastructure that you see in every war that comes in but that's part of the story that I like to read about so what was what was your what was your first indication I'd say I got to write about this and then also then as you followed it through, what, what kept you going to continue to tell the story and continue to write? So you wrote the book. Those are excellent questions. The, the way the operation, uh, the way Operation Halyard first came to my attention was I began to get interested in uh, some of the special operations of World War II and started uh, researching that. And Halyard was one of many ops by the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. And that was quite a swashbuckling organization. Just some of the stuff they pulled off was astounding. And I'm an old airlifter myself. I was a flight engineer on C-130s and C-5s. So naturally, I looked at Operation Halyard from an airlifter point of view. And what struck me is just what they were able to accomplish with World War II technology and C-47s. I mean, what they did with Operation Halyard uh, with the equipment they had would be challenging even now with modern aircraft and night vision goggles, but yet they did it sometimes landing in a dirt airstrip at night with the field lit by nothing but burning hay bales. I mean, th these guys pulled it off because they didn't realize it was impossible. They didn't know they couldn't do it, so they went and did it. Uh, it's, just, it's just astounding. So that begs a question, given that you had such a terrific rescue mission, why wasn't it publicized? You mm. would think it would be a great morale boost for people on the home front. 
you would think it would be a great morale boost for troops in the field. And you'd think this would be splashed all over Life magazine and it would be all over the newsreels in the movie theaters, but it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't, like so many things that have to do with Yugoslavia, uh, it's complicated. Well, actually, the primary reason isn't so complicated. It was plain old operational security. Okay. They didn't know that they wouldn't have to keep going back and getting more of these guys. But even after the flights ended, it was still kept under wraps, under wraps because of uh, political and diplomatic sensitivities. Uh, for one thing, at the time, the Soviets were our allies in fighting the Germans. And there was some concern about ruffling feathers in Moscow if we made a big deal about how we just worked so closely with these non-communist guerrillas fighting the communist guerrillas. So there was that. There was also some concern about ruffling feathers in London. The uh, British were and are our closest allies, but there were elements of the British government who favored working with the partisans, not because they had any sympathy with communists, but because they just felt the partisans were more effective in fighting the Germans. So there was that. And then uh, further complicating the situation was the fate of the uh, non-communist guerrilla, the Chetnik leader, General Draza Mihaljevic. Uh, his side eventually lost the Yugoslav civil war. And in 1946, Tito's government arrested him and put him on trial for high treason and war crimes. And in that same year, they executed him by firing squad. And I think it was seen as something of an embarrassment to the U.S. that after General Mihaljevic had done so much to help rescue our downed airmen, we were not able to apply diplomatic pressure to save his life. So that's another reason why this thing was so sensitive and just not talked about much. Uh, now, General Mihaljevic's uh, legacy is controversial, but after his execution, his reputation was rehabilitated to the point where the Truman administration posthumously awarded him the Legion of Merit chief commander for his role in rescuing these airmen. Wow. It, it's, it sounds, honestly, it just sounds so familiar from what's going on as far as, uh, you know, we have local nationals helping our own troops, helping us win wars. And then, and then, then we kind of leave them behind. And it sounds, it, it just, I, I don't think we ever learn from our mistakes in that aspect, but it's still, to me, on a positive side to see that there are local national civilians that are always willing to stick their necks out to help the U.S. and help our service members and those guys on the ground who, who don't care about the politics. And to me, that shows just amazing how the human spirit is, regardless of what ethnicity or, or, or where you, what country you live in. <clears throat> What's right is right, and humanity does take forefront in the majority of the majority of the time and, and civilians. I, I, I admire that working in Afghanistan and Iraq quite a bit as well. And then also Libya and Yemen, the, the locals there always treated us well, the ones that we weren't fighting the, the, the terrorists and, and it, you know, my heart goes out to all of them. And especially now with this as well, you know, how, how many of those locals actually lost their lives. And I, I you know, I, Tom, I, I don't know. Do you have a number on that? That, that, that did they ever come through? That they said, hey, "This is how many Yugoslavians lost their lives helping U.S. airmen." And, and, and the reason I ask that, I guess, just being in the military myself, it, it, it just shows selfless service, and I, I admire that in any person, whoever you are. Uh, but it did, was there a number of, of Yugoslavians that did lose their lives? That, and I didn't see it in the book. Maybe I missed it. Um, but but that you you'd come across during your research to help Americans out of there? 
I'm sure that number is out there. To be honest, I, I don't know it off the top of my head, but um, that your 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 point does remind me of something, though. I could uh, relate to you, sort of a not, not a not a thirty thousand foot uh, <laughs> statistic, but a personal story. Please, that, that really brought home this whole episode to me. Uh, I, I knew someone who actually inspired one of the characters in Red Burning Sky. Uh, when you need, read the novel, you you read from the points of view of three different main characters. One is one of the downed airmen. Uh, another of the main characters is a, uh, a f- and, and these characters are all fictional. There's a, uh, a C-47 rescue pilot, and there are chapters from his point of view. And then there are chapters from the point of view of a young Serbian guerrilla named Vaza, a teenage guerrilla. And believe it or not, that character was inspired by someone I knew. And uh, he, knowing this individual, really gave me a sense of the, the commitment and courage uh, of, of these people who uh, helped us in uh, Yugoslavia. But in the 1980s, when I was a student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I took a terrific course in Russian novels. And the professor was a gentleman named Dr. Vaza Mahalovic. No relation to General Mahalovic that I know of. That's a common Serbian family name. And uh, he just kept us spellbound uh, with uh, with interest in these Russian novels. But he also kept us spellbound with his personal story, because as a teenager, he had picked up a rifle and fought communists and Germans at the same time. And so you can imagine the stories that he had. And when his side lost the Yugoslav Civil War, uh, he found it prudent to leave Yugoslavia And he spent five years in refugee camps in uh, Italy and in Germany. And finally, in 1951, uh, my future professor made his way to the U.S. And uh, he said when he arrived in New York Harbor, they gave him an envelope with $50 and a bus ticket to Kansas City. (laughs) He rides the bus to Kansas City, gets a job he doesn't like. uh, So he moves to Detroit and gets a job on a Chrysler assembly line. And while working that assembly line, he paid his way through college and he got his undergraduate degree, his master's degree and his Ph.D. And he became a respected scholar of Russian and East European literature. And that's how he came to be my professor. I don't think he was a soldier by nature. He was in his element when he was sitting by the fire with a glass of brandy and a good book. (laughs) But in his youth, when he was a teenager, he picked up a weapon and did what he felt he had to do. And you really have to respect that. Yeah, I'm wondering, Tom, was are just you being a student of history at that time and, and learning from these great people, is that what inspired you to become a writer? Is, is that what inspired this type of work from you getting out of service in 2013? It certainly did. Um, people like Dr. Mihaljevic inspired me. My grandfather inspired me. He was a World War II veteran. He had been a mechanic on B-17 Flying Fortresses with the 94th Bomb wow. Group, and I grew up hearing his stories. Uh, and I always loved uh, reading uh, about World War II, and uh, I've always been a uh, uh, very interested in uh, in not just the history, but also the literature of that period. I've been a fan of uh, some of the great novels about World War II written by the written by veterans, uh, novels that were big in the mid twentieth century. Uh, you know, authors like Norman Mailer. James Jones, uh, novels like From Here to Eternity, um, 
the Thin Red Line, uh, The Naked and the Dead by Mailer. Uh, it's just always been a fascinating uh, area for me. What, what made you take that leap of going from a guy, you know, doing military service who's been in combat to becoming a fiction and nonfiction author? That's a good question. I've, I've actually sort of lived a, a dual career in aviation and in writing pretty much all my adult life. Um, when I was in college, I was torn between studying journalism or uh, going into Air Force ROTC and pursuing a full-time active duty career. And at the time, I chose to study journalism. And in my youthful ignorance, I thought I had to choose one or the other and never look back. So I pursued writing and journalism pretty single-mindedly for a long time. I, I worked for the Associated Press for 10 years. And uh, when we were covering the Gulf War, we did a lot of human interest stories about people that I thought were very interesting. Uh, and these were people in the Guard and Reserve who were getting uh, activated and deployed for uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, they, they had these interesting double lives where they pursued their civilian careers, but then they had these military jobs. And one of the people that we, that we featured was a guy who was a television reporter in Louisiana, and he was also an Air Force Reserve pilot. And uh, that kind of sounded familiar to me, a journalist with an interest in military aviation. And I thought, well, heck, if he can do that, I can do that too. So I went into the Air National Guard and became a C-130 flight engineer. And then um, also I'd always been interested in writing fiction, but I never had a good idea for a novel that I could really sink my teeth into until 9-11 came along and my unit started getting activated and deployed for uh, Afghanistan operations and then later Iraq. And that gave me uh, plenty of material to work with. So my first six novels were novels set in present day conflicts. Uh, and then, uh, as I said, I'd always been interested in World War II and I finally got around to writing a World War II novel titled Silver Wings Iron Cross and uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the process of writing that and uh, sort of stayed in that genre of historical novels and Red Burning Sky is my second novel set in World War II. Uh, I'm just curious if your experience as a veteran, as a guy who served in these countries, has it really helped you as a writer? Because you got, we've had writers on the show like Brad Thor who don't have military service like myself and they, they rely on other people, whether it's um, Morgan and Marcus Luttrell, to say, hey, am I getting the lingo right? Am I getting all the technicalities right? I'm wondering if, if someone like yourself, like a Jack Carr that we've had on who also served and now writes fiction, is it is it much easier for you to translate what you did into your books? I think it is. I mean, there's never any substitute for experience. Uh, of course, now that I'm writing uh, World War II novels, I, I don't know what it was like to fly a B-17 in combat, but having flown in hostile fire zones, uh, I'm at least familiar with the emotions, uh, the, uh, the way that your, your primary concern is you don't want to let down your buddies and you're thinking, you know, please, Lord, don't let me screw this up. And, and, and that, that feeling you get when those red lights start coming up at the aircraft and, um, you know, when you know you're in harm's way, the technical stuff is actually uh, the easiest part. I mean, I can't go out and fly a B-17 whenever I want, but uh, there are ways to, to get at that piece of it, too. Uh, and believe it or not, one of the best ways is YouTube. 
someone, probably several someones, has done us authors and historians a great favor by uploading a lot of World War II training films to YouTube. And you can watch uh, a film that a World War II pilot trainee would have been shown on how to fly the B-17, how to fly the C-47s. And what struck me when I first started watching those uh, training films is just how good they were. They uh, enlisted some A-list Hollywood talent to write, uh, direct, and act in those training films. And they are as good as any training film I've ever seen in the military, except what I saw was in color, and, and those are in black and white. But they give you really granular level details on how people operated the aircraft back then and and not just um, not just pilot training films too I mean you can find great training films on how they packed parachutes yeah. back then how to clean an m1 um, just anything you can imagine there's a training film there for it and uh, that that makes it uh, quite easy to research that kind of thing yeah, I, I have a question on you know, not not the book per se, but your experiences. And because I, I do like to hear of, of experiences and combat experiences. Um, I don't know, just because it's still, still the kid in me, even though I've seen it, seen a little bit myself from time to time. Um, one thing when you first started getting in and, and you started to you, you were in your first uh, first scenario where you, you you're getting shot at and there's tracers coming up at your bird and, you know, we have a lot of young listeners uh, that are thinking about joining the service. And I, I want them to hear what actually goes through your head. Cause that's what I wanted to hear before I joined. It, and it kind of preps you. It does a preps you for the expectation of, of when I go in, this is what I can expect. And, and it may change people's minds that maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I don't need to be here. Maybe I'm not ready for something like this. So yeah, Tom, could you, could you maybe if you can go a little bit in depth and, in your first experience where you, you really thought your life was in danger and, and I know maybe it'll help a youngster out there either decide to join or maybe say, hey, this isn't for me and go to the, and, and do something else. So I, I, I just, I'd like to hear because everybody has a different sort of experience from that. So, um, and your mindset and what got you through that, through that time where, Hey man, your, your, your humanity, your, 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 your life, you know, Hey, this could be it. Uh, what was, how'd you push through it? How'd you persevere? Oh, that's a terrific question. And um, at least for those of us in the flying business, in, in my limited experience, when you come under fire, it happens so fast and then it's over so fast. You don't have time to get scared in the moment. If you get scared, it's later when you're looking <laughs> back on it and you think what could have happened. I'll give you an example. I remember one night in May of 03. So this wasn't long after Operation Iraqi Freedom kicked off. I was with a C-130 crew and we were taken off from uh, Baghdad uh, International mm -hmm. Airport about 11 o'clock at night. And just as we were climbing out shortly after we brought up the gear, uh, some bad guys launched on us with uh, what we believe was a shoulder fired heat seeking missile, probably an SA-7 which is one of the older tech uh, shoulder-fired missiles. And I'll just describe it the way we experienced it. Just all of a sudden, the missile warning tones in the aircraft went off, which is this gosh-awful <laughs> be-do, be-do, be-do warning tone. And then our defensive systems uh, activated automatically. Uh, the defensive system kicked out flares, which are help, help fool a heat-seeking missile. 
And our, uh, our aircraft commander, the left seat pilot, was a terrific pilot. And he responded immediately by uh, making the appropriate maneuver. I probably can't get into a lot of detail about that. But just all of a sudden, there was this flash when these flares went out. The cockpit lit up like the sun. There's these god-awful warning lights. And, and now we're in this steep turn. And maybe for a second, I thought, oh, my goodness, we've been hit. And then I realized, wait a minute, I didn't feel any impact. The airplane is still flying. You know, let's stick with our procedures and do what we're supposed to do. And in much less time than it takes to tell it, it was over. Wow. So then we're wings level, flying back to base. And for the rest of that flight, we were we were just about silent, <laughs> except for the checklist that we had to run. Uh we were so quiet every now and then the aircraft commander would come on the interphone and say, Hey, are you guys all right? And everybody would check in, you know, co-pilots. Okay. Navigators. Okay. Engineers. Okay. We were all fine, but we were just kind of in, in stunned silence. And, and as I said, it, it happened so fast. Uh, you didn't have time to get scared in the moment. Do you, do you value it? And I always value this. I tell people all the time, the importance of training to prepare you, for that, so you can go into habitual mode. You can get through all that. Um, do you do you agree with that? And and how difficult was your training to uh, beforehand? So you prepared you before you were started to fly combat missions. How arduous was it? And and did it help you, or did you think that eh, now the training wasn't really adequate? I we just we just got through it by sheer will and guts. Training was paramount, and I have to give a lot of credit to my old commander. Colonel Jesse Thomas, and I hope he hears this because I, I think the world of that officer. <laughs> I remember even before 9-11, uh, his philosophy with our training was that you were going to be not just qualified, but proficient in everything this airplane can do. And that includes airdrop, low level, using night vision goggles, all of that stuff. Not only are you going to be qualified and fill the squares, you're going to be proficient. And he was he was very demanding about that. And um, I once had an interesting conversation with him. I was talking to him because I was working on a nonfiction book that was an oral history of, of my unit's missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I asked him his command philosophy. And what he said was very interesting. He said, when you're in a combat zone, you're going to have enough stress on you just being in a combat zone you don't need the additional stress of figuring out how to use your night vision goggles or how to operate the defensive systems on the airplane or, or just all of the technical stuff of doing your job. That stuff needs to be second nature. So he said he felt, as he put it, he said, I'm not getting it exactly word for word, but basically he said, I feel it's my job to make sure you're proficient because that takes stress off of you and makes you that much more uh, prepared and safe in, in a combat zone. And, and that was the truth. He was a very demanding uh, commander, but he did us a great favor because when 9-11 happened and we got deployed, we were ready. No, that's, that's great. I, I agree. I completely agree with that. You need to make where everything is second nature, habitual. And, and, and then when stuff happens, you just, you're able to react and react efficiently and it creates that efficiency. So completely agree with that. But, you know, coming back to the book, uh, you know, the, the message of heroism, the message of, 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 you know, just intestinal fortitude, uh, of course, but, you know, on Red Burning Sky and then even some of your other fiction books, is there, a, is there any underlying message that, that you're really trying to get through to, 
to 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 the readers. You know, of course, being entertained, you got to have an entertaining book to be successful, and of course, your books are. But um, you know, is there something else in there that maybe I'm missing? I, I see the heroism because of of uh, I I understand that, and even in a fiction book, because of your experience. The names may be fictional, but the but like you said, and I agree with this, the, the, the characters and the reactions are not fictional. They're coming from someplace that you've seen or you experienced before. But is there anything else from the books that you want people to, to get out of them? To, to, is, there, is there something maybe I'm missing? Um, a sense of patriotism that 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 uh, or, or love for country, love for. So I, you know, I, I guess I'm just pulling things out of uh, an old plethora of old sayings, but. Is there anything that that we're missing that maybe uh, you want us to actually to, to look at when reading the books? You want us to pull out of there, uh, aside from the heroism and the courage that, that's displayed by by your characters in their books. Well, what I hope to do is uh, put readers in the shoes of the characters and help them feel what it's like to be there to. Uh, to feel the cold and the heat and the pain, to smell the smells, to feel the uh, to feel the emotions. Um, in another recent interview, somebody asked me an excellent question, and that is, what is the difference between fiction and nonfiction when it comes to learning history? And my answer was, of course, with learning history, nonfiction is essential, and that's the starting point for learning history. But what I hope to do as a fiction writer uh, is is to give the reader empathy uh, to. To, to not just tell the reader what happened, but to help the reader understand what it might have felt like to be there. So that's uh, if if I could choose one thing that I hope readers will take away from my work, it would be that. That's awesome. I And I think people are really going to dig this book if they check it out. Anyone into historical fiction. And I feel like Kensington has such a great lineup of authors uh, who have served guys like who we've had on the show, like General A.J. Tata. Or uh, Anderson Harp, who I've interviewed before, who's a uh, retired Marine. So you guys are really doing great stuff over there. Uh, and once again, the book is Red Burning Sky. So so check it out. It'll be out Tuesday because we're going to have this show up on Monday. And uh, you can check out Tom, TomYoungBooks.com, at Thomas W. Young on Twitter, and at T. Young Books on Instagram. It's great to have you on. And it's actually great to not only learn about this book and the history of what inspired the book, but also learn a little bit about your history. And I think that's kind of what we do here. Man, much kudos to you and your bravery, brother. Well, thanks so much. It's been an honor to talk to you, and I certainly appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, God Tom. bless, Tom. That's all for this episode of the Battle Line Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battle Line Podcast and on Twitter at Battle Line Pod. To sign up for future Battle Line tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never, never quit. quit.